Alibaba is shaking things up and Amazon faces more scrutiny. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Mann. Bill, how are you today? Hey, Deidre, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So, this week has been an interesting one for Alibaba. We've got Chairman and CEO Daniel Zong. He's stepping down to focus on the growth of the cloud intelligence business as it heads for a spinoff. And Eddie Wu is going to take over as CEO. Is this a case of Zhang kind of putting his energy towards what he sees as the biggest growth opportunity? So, uh, I, I don't know how you could view this as being anything other than a demotion for, for Daniel Zhang. So, he had formally and by formerly, I mean three months ago, was to be the chairman of the entire entity. But uh, they are instead putting Joe Tsai back into uh, back into that role. I suspect that there are uh, political reasons for doing so. This is very. You know, we are talking about China, so a lot of times, a lot of the sensitivities, particularly with a business as large as Alibaba and as meaningful as Alibaba is to the economy of China have to do with relations between the companies and the government. So there's a lot that we don't know here, but it, you know, in a lot of ways, the person who is in this role right now is trying to steady a ship at, at Alibaba. They have had uh, a, a very rough go of things. A lot of their divisions are either loss-making or their most important division, which is Taobao, uh, has seen uh, Earnings decline. I, I want to say negative earnings growth, but that's a you know that's much easier put as an earnings decline. Uh, so there's a lot to to write here, and so I think for uh, for Zhang, you really can't view this as being anything other than a demotion. He's focusing on cloud, which is a struggling part of their business, and I think that his his future at the company is going to be very tightly linked with that. Interesting, because the memo that that uh, he released sort of definitely spun it the other way. So, so they did some good PR there. Well, you bought it, I guess. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I was the only one. No, no, no. I, I, I think that that's probably true. And, and, and obviously, it's still a very high profile, very important position. What are they going to say otherwise, though? I mean, so essentially, you have a you you have a company that's preparing to break itself up, and they made a decision three months ago, and now they are reconsidering that structure. So, uh, and they are putting. Uh, they're they're putting power uh, into the hands of one of two members, uh, two permanent members, I should say, of the Alibaba partnership, which is the longstanding uh, kitchen table group. I think there are 29 members now, but the only permanent ones are Jack Ma and Joseph Tsai. So they're putting more official responsibility upon him as well. Well, let's talk about that because Jack Ma, he was uh, he was being a visiting professor in Tokyo recently. Then this week, he's been photographed with Joseph Tsai. How should we consider Jack Ma as part of the story? 
It's hard to say because he essentially disappeared, and by essentially disappeared, he actually physically disappeared for a long time after some comments that he made uh, about the banking system in China that were taken as being impolitic, which is uh, a cardinal sin in China. Uh, so he's been uh, he has been in the background for a long time. He still owns two and a half percent of the company, roughly, uh, and he is a member of the partnership, which is a a pretty unique uh, group where there are standing members, and again, it's just the two, the, the, those two, and then other temporary members. And within the partnership, it is one member, one vote. So he still has a fair amount of influence at. Alibaba, and I think moving Joseph Tsai, who is a who is Taiwanese-born, educated here in the U.S., uh, into a much higher role as as his role as a co-founder speaks a lot to how important Alibaba views this upcoming year and their uh, impending breakup will be. Well, let's talk a little bit about that breakup. So, as the, I guess they're restructuring into six different divisions. Some of them, it seems like, are headed for spinoffs more uh, more quickly, including the logistics division. You uh, you had a line recently that I loved in another recording. You called Alibaba the circulatory system of the Chinese economy. So, I'm yep. wondering, which part of the circulatory system do you see spinning off first, and which ones are more appealing to you? It's really hard to say. They have not been specific about what's getting spun off or what their process is going to be. And I think, uh, I think that this restructure in the C level and the C level plus has a lot to do with them considering what their uh, what what their ongoing uh, process and strategy is going to be. We don't even really know whether companies are going to be spun off or whether they're going to be IPO'd, and that matters. For investors, are you going to receive shares in a component of the current Alibaba, or is simply the company going to uh, do a uh, an IPO in which the company would receive proceeds? So, for the most part, if you look at the the six divisions, there are there there are really two choices that you have. You either have companies uh, or divisions that are making a lot of money but aren't growing very quickly, and that's primarily uh, Taobao and. And the remainder are uh, growing faster, but are at the present unprofitable, and that includes cloud. Uh, and then the final, the 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 sixth division is media and entertainment, and that has been a a, a sort of terminally un, underperforming uh, component of Alibaba. And I suspect that that is something that may end up being sold. But of the ones that uh, are of most interest to me, I think that I've got to go with the with, with Taobao and and Tmall, uh, and then following uh, that. Uh, their logistics services, because those are two titles or two entities at Alibaba that are really, really hard to recreate. Well, let's talk about Tmall, because they're launching Tmall in Europe, and we don't have too many details on that yet. I guess there is a Spain uh, test in Spain going on. Uh, all, all that I've seen so far is that it's the idea is to bring local products to local consumers. Well, yeah, that sounds good. But what about Tmall could give it an advantage in Europe? I don't know that there's going to be much of an advantage over the existing players, with the exception of this, and it is that they have a massive checkbook behind them. 
that they have they have the capacity to launch at a scale that is almost unheard of or unmatched by uh, existing competitors in the space. So I think that the move into into other geographies outside of outside of greater China and and East Asia has to do a little bit more with the slowing of the growth uh, in its uh, in its home region than it is a you know, a, a competitive advantage that they can bring to bear. So they're very much going to be a uh, a credible and powerful competitor here. But it is, in fact, a highly competitive environment to start with. Uh, but it's one where they think that they have uh, some capacity to to compete. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about another e-commerce and cloud company, uh, Amazon. Federal Trade Commission has taken action against the company for what it calls non-consensual subscriptions and cancellation trickery. Uh, Sounds is, dirty when you put it that way, right? <laughs> so, this, so this is over over Prime, and you know how how much should we be taking the FTC seriously? They've gone after Amazon before. Recently, Amazon has paid uh, about thirty million for. Uh, child data concerns over Alexa, uh, privacy concerns over Ring. What, what's what's the story here? Well, so I think you should take them incredibly, uh, I, I think you should take them incredibly uh, seriously. And in fact, three months ago, the FTC uh, filed a proposed rule provision, which would make it easier for consumers to click to cancel. And basically, the principle there is, however hard it is for you to subscribe to something, it should be that easy or easier to cancel. So, this is a broader rulemaking and that happened that, that came out, and they're getting comments on now, so that was the end of March. But for them to sue Amazon specifically, tells you that that original rulemaking, who that was primarily uh, targeted at. So, the the suit itself makes for fascinating reading in some ways to the extent that lawsuits ever make for fascinating reading that that because there was a actual process in place called the Iliad flow is what they called it uh, within Amazon it's a reference to the Iliad and the Odyssey you know which is you know the the Odyssey being the journey and then the Iliad being the war how hard it is for you know for people to cancel so i think this is something that is was was coming anyway this is a much more spectacular uh event in that they are actually going after amazon whenever i see things like this deirdre i don't know if you're if if you are in the same boat whenever i see a company that makes it really hard to cancel a service i view that as a sign of weakness for the company itself right if if the level of faith that you have in your business or your product is that it should be hard for people to get away from you I think that's a statement to the to for the company itself. So uh, and for the product itself. So uh, so the suit has just come out. I suspect that the suit itself is a way of pushing along the more omnibus click to cancel rulemaking that the Federal Trade Commission wants to make. 
I think it's interesting because we've seen a switch with subscriptions from, you know, from boxes to to more uh, sort of like, you know, entertainment and things like that. Do you feel like the subscription economy is is changing as consumers uh, start to maybe look at their look at how much they're spending? I would say so. I mean, there's obviously a point of resistance. Who was it? It was Jim Barksdale who once said in terms of entertainment that that there are two ways to make mon- money: one is to bundle, and the other is to unbundle. So <laughs> I think that we have come to an incredibly unbundled uh, situation uh, with with the um, consu- consumption habits of. I'm going to speak domestically of a lot of Americans, you know, I have two kids in college and their textbooks are on a subscription basis, not on a buy a big piece of a former tree. Uh, so the, I think at some point there's got to be some, some, some pushback and um, it may just come in the form of rebundling a lot of things that have been unbundled. So this this FTC thing it came out at the same time that Amazon was announcing Prime Day. A lot of hype around Prime Day every year. It's uh, July starts July 11th this year. Kind of seen as a bellwether. How are you thinking about e-commerce right now? And is is there more pressure on Prime Day this year than maybe in past years? Oh, I don't know. I always view Prime Day as a way that Amazon could sort of sort of clear out its uh, its warehouses of stuff that hasn't been selling. Right, I like it, which is, I guess, a pretty powerful, uh, a pretty powerful thing for for a a company to to be able to do. Uh, so, obviously, Prime Day in 2020, uh, 2021 and twenty twenty two were massive. Uh, I think you know, particularly at the tail end of uh, of the pandemic and us being shut into our houses, that was probably meaningful. I'm not sure. I mean, it's an entirely manufactured uh, event, right? Like one hundred percent, right? Like Hallmark wishes they had thought of doing something <laughs> as Indeed. powerful as Prime Day uh, and turning it into a holiday. So I, I wish I'd paid more attention to it, other than to just be cynical about it. Like, what, what is this? A random day, day in July when we could buy stuff and store? So more Amazon boxes will show up at our houses. So yes, I assume it's important for them. I also wonder how in the world it got to be so important uh, as it is, other than a day to uh, go and get some bargains. Right, the media coverage of it gets kind of kind of breathless, which I, I find interesting. The things that are sort of changing this year, though, one of them is that it's going to allow buy with Prime deals. So I'm wondering if that's going to make a difference because it'll be not just Amazon but third parties as well. So that might be something to watch too. It really might be something to watch as well. I just, you know, via Condias, go and <laughs> go go and buy your stuff. I I I I I don't really know what more to say about Prime uh, about Prime Day, other than it has caused me over the last couple of years. Whenever it has come up, it's been the kind of thing when I've rolled my eyes pretty hard. Like another another great reason for us to buy some stuff. <laughs> Which is what both Amazon and Alibaba seem to want from us. Sure, that might make them happy, but I don't. <laughs> but beyond that, for me, I'm not sure what uh, what what the point of it is. All right. Well, thanks for the chat today, Bill. All right. Thank you. Many of the SPACs that hit the market in 2021 are now trading for under a dollar. 
What happens when a company faces delisting risk? I talked to Ricky Mulvey about what's next for some of these companies. Just because you got a place on a stock exchange doesn't mean you get to stay there. Deidre, some higher profile companies have received these delisting notices like Blue Apron, WeWork, and BuzzFeed. But let's go back a little bit. Where do you think this story starts? Well, the story kind of starts with the SPAC boom, right? We had all of these companies come to market without going through the sort of more rigorous IPO cycle. So we had over 600 SPACs go public in 2021. Not not as many since then, obviously. But some of these companies were just not ready for prime time, I think. And, and the market has kind of reflected that. There was a report from SPAC research in April that there were over 100 SPACs in the pennies per share club. And so, as these companies trade under under a dollar, that's, you know, they, they can't continue to do that. There are rules for both the, the, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ about that. And I think that $1 per share is kind of interesting because that's the barrier makes sense because once you start getting in that $1 range, little swings in share price have have just a massive impact on on the folks who own the stocks. Yeah, absolutely. So, you're a company, let's say you're you personally Deidre, you're a SPAC and uh, you just got a, a delisting notice. What what happens? What what's the warning ticket you're getting from the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange? Yeah, so you're getting this warning. It happens if you've been under a dollar for about 30 days and that opens for the Nasdaq what they call a compliance period. So, you've got 180 days basically to to kind of right the ship one way or another and then you could be eligible for a second 100 80-day period if all requirements are met. But it really sort of, once you're under $1 for 30 days, it sort of, it starts this clock that then just keeps ticking. And you kind of either have to take action or risk being delisted permanently. So, the company gets the delisting notice. They have some tricks up their sleeve to get back on the good side of the market officials. What, what can they do after receiving that notice? Well, you know, a company can't really wait for a market to to kind of fall in love with it and just give it more money. So there's a couple of tricks. First one is a reverse stock split, which you know is just basically what it sounds like: is that you get more shares, and so that will boost up the price. The other thing is companies are really trying to raise capital. So let's talk about Blue Apron. They kind of they just use both. So they did a 1 for 12 split. They also sold off part of their infrastructure to a company called Fresh Realm for 25 million in upfront cash, another 25 million if they hit certain incentives, and then they're going to sublease some of that space that they sold back from Fresh Realm. So they're trying to do both at the same time and when you look at these companies, especially ones that don't have a lot of money right now and are in this under $1 category. They're basically trying to do both of these things at once. First, correct the problem, and then also make sure they have enough capital to keep going. Yeah, what a, what a darling that's fallen back to earth in the case of Blue Apron. I think at one point it was worth about six billion dollars, and now in some of its quarter quarterly releases, it's using the term in order to fund near term operations, which is uh, which is always a red flag, Deidre. So let's say a company let's let's say a company fails at that. They're they're under a one uh, they're under one dollar for more than a thirty day period. They can't get back on track. What what happens to the company and, and the stockholders after a company is delisted from those exchanges. 
it, it is not good. Uh, they can trade over the counter. They they can potentially come back, but the amount of companies that come back is is pretty low. A lot of times, what you see is a Chapter Eleven and a restructuring. Maybe they get bought by somebody. You know, once once a company gets to that point where they're officially delisted, that that sort of is a real demarcation point. The market has lost faith. It's usually likely that the debt is kind of out of out of control. That usually maybe the best case scenario would be a buyout in that case. So if you own the stock, you know what's important to look for if if you're worried a company you own might be in danger of getting delisted. I would want to make sure that the company has a plan, and I would want to look and make sure that they have enough enough capital to to keep going. So you really want to see: do they have enough runway? How much debt do they have? When is that debt coming due? How much cash do they have? And also, sort of longer: what is the growth story, and is it is it realistic? Are they waiting for the economy to shift or something like that, or are they waiting for some other milestone to be achieved? So you want to make sure that the that there's a plan first of all, and that the financial back up the plan. One company with a let's say complicated growth story ahead of it that is that maybe shuffle stepping out of a delisting is WeWork, which has the most office space of any company in the United States. What are they doing to shuffle step out of these delisting notices? Yeah, so this one is interesting. You know, WeWork, uh, as we all know, it's like the most most famous, I think, S1 that kind of like completely derailed their IPO. And then they came to market via SPAC. They restructured their debt in May. So they pushed about $1.6 billion in debt maturities. They pushed that out to 2027. This one is interesting. They're doing a vote, a reverse stock split, but they've given us a range from 1 to 10 to as high as 1 to 40. So that does give us a lot of range. As a shareholder, you don't get to vote on that. You get to vote for or against the split. The board gets to decide how big the split. So it's 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 in an interesting spot. The CEO and the CEO uh, CEO and the CFO recently left as well. So let's say f- not more people are going to the office. That seems to be a, a a macro win that's hurting WeWork. But what is there anything that could turn them around? You think? You know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about with this is, is it the right idea? It seemed like such a brilliant idea. And yet, we've, WeWork's not the only one that has had a problem with making co-working profitable. After the early success of WeWork, a couple of the big real estate companies, uh, including CBRE, they started their own sort of WeWork kind of thing. Uh, CBRE had one called HANA. They transferred that to Industrious, which is another WeWork, another co-working company. It's interesting. I feel like there's demand. There's a good brand here, but I think the split is buying them time. It, I'm wondering how big it could be. And I think that it is. It, the idea was bigger than the actual reality is. One of the things I'm looking at is IWS Regis, right? Regis, that's the sort of, that's the, the OG in the space. They've struggled on and off. They currently have around 3,300 spaces. I think that part of the problem with WeWork was that they projected a demand that was really much bigger than than it actually turned out to be. Well, and I was looking at I was actually looking at the um, IWG earlier today that the one that owns Regis, and while actually surprisingly their their uh, revenue has has gone up post pandemic, that surprised me. They seem to be having a huge problem with net income profitability, and I think a lot of that's because of debt restructuring, and you're paying much higher interest rates on on those loans. Yeah, absolutely. It is not a great time to be dealing with trying to get loans for office space. So while WeWork has a a supply problem, there might be a demand problem for some of the vacation rental SPAC darlings, uh, including Vacasa and Sonder. 
Yeah, Vacasa has been an interesting one to watch. It's essentially a property management service for vacation rentals. So that makes a lot of sense, right? We've seen how big Airbnb has gotten. Vacasa basically handles the property management for homeowners. Should be a great thing. But it, it has it has floundered a bit. The shareholders did recently approve a reverse stock split. So the delisting problem is solved for now, but they've got some big problems, including homeowner churn. They've got, you know, there's the demand, but I think that there's an issue of trying to right size here because you've got a new CEO in place, Rob Graybar. They've done two rounds of layoffs. They're trying to streamline their tech, but I think part of the problem is really supply having the right supply of cleaning staff based on the turnover. So you sort of got like two levels of supply and demand going on there. Also, never good to see a CFO transition when uh, when your company's in, in turmoil like that. One of the most high-profile delisting cases going on right now is Nikola, the electric truck maker, which is actually producing electric trucks. There's a lot of sort of controversy and battle going around with the stock split at Nikola because the company right now is trying to issue more shares in order to fund existing operations. It seems to be bleeding a lot of cash right now, where uh, I think their net income for the previous 12 months was about negative $800 million. They have about $400 million in cash. And you have a founder who is awaiting sentencing. Uh, for securities fraud, and Trevor Milton, who is saying, we, you sh- absolutely should not dilute any of the shareholders for this company. Right. This one is so complicated. You know, they've they've been doing some of the the uh, delisting playbooks. So they've done layoffs. About twenty percent of the staff. They sold off a joint venture to one of their partners uh, in Germany. They're they've taken their operations. They're consolidating it all in Coolidge, Arizona. They say that they can save four hundred million by twenty twenty four. So so that's good. But they're trying to straddle both the electric side and the hydrogen side, which I think is really complicated. And yeah, the the Trevor Milton thing adds this just. This extra level of noise on top of everything else that they're trying to do. Well, not just noise. I think he still has 50 million shares in the company, so he has a significant vote. And you have a, this the poor CEO who is appealing has a video out on uh, Vimeo appealing to the shareholders on Robinhood. Please, in order to keep this company going, we need you to let us issue more shares and dilute you for uh, a little bit. Uh, I, we couldn't even find how many new shares they wanted to issue, but this is. This is a company like like many of the ones we just described that is just struggling for oxygen right now. In addition to those delisting problems, well, yeah, and the the delisting thing is important because once you get delisted, I mean, it is a black mark. It is very very hard to come back from that. So you've got really he has to convince people. And Trevor Milton is out there saying, you know, don't don't do this. This is a terrible thing for you to do as a shareholder. So that's that's complicated as well. He he can't change, you know, he can't, even if he throws in all of his votes, he can't fully do it himself. So he sort of needs to convince them. So you've got these both both of these sides going on at the same time. Interesting to see how all of these play out. Deidre Woolley, appreciate it. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.